Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. I want to continue speaking on integrity. Remember, the whole impress of this is we need grace. And grace looks for righteousness as a context in which to abide. Part of righteousness is integrity. Integrity alludes to innocence. It alludes to uprightness, to purity. It also then secondarily alludes to wholeness or completeness. But it's essentially a life that pleases God because what you do, you do in compliance to God's expectation for you. So if you know God has a view of a thing and or a principle governing a certain matter, that you position yourself in reference to the principle governing um, behavior in that arena. To violate the principle would be to displease God or disobey Him. Okay? So I honor the principle in any specific issue or circumstance that I, I function in. At work to my boss, in relationship to my wife, as a father to my kids, as a friend to other friends that I have in the, in the world. The issues relative to morality or purity, for example. In all of life, in the way I manage my finances, in the way in which I honor God or, or share it with the needs of people, the way I financially steward my life, I must be a person of integrity. Everyone say integrity. There must be circumspectness and uprightness about everything I do. Because the moment I compromise and I start to cut corners and disobey righteous standards, there will be kinks in my life. Integrity comes from the root word Latin integer, a mathematical term like in numbers which are integers are whole numbers, not decimals or fractions. Okay? So to, to, to breach protocol or to violate a principle will lead to infractions. It's a nice English term, infractions or breakages within one's being of wholeness and completeness. Whenever you think integrity, please think wholeness. You don't just think a clean living and doing what's right. Because the word has got two, two nuances. The one alludes to uprightness, innocence, purity, simplicity. But the other part of it, it's whole or, com, whole or complete. In other words, you're compact, you are together. There's no breakages in your life that compromise you or will make you fall, make you weak. But you, you are strong. And I said to you last time, your purity is your power. Your purity is the, the glue that's going to make you and give you a great sense of confidence in God. In the past two weeks, I spoke about integrity of the heart. I was stressing the fact that it must not be external, but it must be internal. It must be true of the very essence of your being. If we open you up and put you up under a microscope, and are able to see into your heart. I must see one thing in the heart. I must see a heart of integrity. 
not just external expressions of integrity that are not reflective of the internal position of your heart. Because that is possible. It's possible to parade it and to pass it off as true, whereas it does not emit from the core of the internal being of your heart. So everything you do must be reflective of your, must be reflective of your heart, especially in the matter of living a life of integrity. In Acts 8 last week, we saw the account of Simon the sorcerer who wanted to buy with money the gift of praying for people so that they will receive the baptism in the Holy Ghost. The apostles looked at him and said, you must repent of this wickedness of yours. Acts 18 verse 21. Okay. You have no portion but taking leave of them saying, Acts 8 verse 21. My mistake, sorry. Not 18. 8 21. You have no part or portion in this matter because what is not right before God? Your heart is not right before God. Listen carefully. When the heart is not right, the external actions will, cannot be right. So, isn't it laudable that he wants to pray for people and for them to receive baptism in the Holy Ghost? He wants something good, but he seeks to procure it with carnal means simply because the attitude of his heart is not right before God. The end does not justify the means. Not because you have a noble end can you employ carnal means to arrive at the end. God is just as interested in the means as He is in the end. Don't just say, I can do anything to pursue my destiny and attain the outcome. No. In fact, God is more concerned about your process than reaching your destination. Okay? Uh, Jacob fraudulently defrauded his brother out of his birthright, taking advantage of his brother Esau's weakness of hunger, inability to control appetite, and extracted by an exchange the birthright from him. He offered him the bowl of soup, and he got the birthright. Right? But that singular action, watch, dislocated that man for the next 20 years. He had to run away to Uncle Laban's house, for 20 years. There he would procure Rachel and Leah as his wife. Yes, that is true. But in his own, in his own uh, admittance, Laban discerned something that was happening in his heart. After 20 years, Laban deceived him. He runs back. He leaves without permission. And Laban caught up with him. And Laban said to him in Genesis 31 verse 30, I have, I have seen all these 20 years how that you've longed for your father's house. Because in father's house, destiny will be played out. My point is, he sought to inaccurately get something good. Getting something good is birthright. That's commendable. But he did it through the wrong methodology. That led to a 20-year dislocation and a 20-year deferment of purpose. Right? Before he would come back and be reintegrated to his father's house, he had to reconcile with Esau. This is 20 years later after the offense. Right? Before he reconciled with Esau, he met the angel of the Lord 
on the mount the night before. And he said to the angel of the Lord, I will not let you go until you, until you bless me. But he was blessed 20 years before by his father when he received the birthright. But that blessing was accessed fraudulently. And what the Lord spoke to me, just this is part of my message to the conference yesterday, is that things accessed fraudulently, things attained through wrong means. You got it, but you got it the wrong way. Can never ever be blessed fully. Jacob realized it. He says, now I have to come back. But before I encounter the brother, I have to encounter him and I have to access this blessing for myself. And in the process, God asked him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. God knew his name. When God asks you questions, it doesn't mean God doesn't know. He wants you to know some things. Right? So when he says, what is your name? He's literally saying, what is your nature? When he said, I am Jacob, Jacob means supplanted deceiver. God is asking him, come to terms with your nature. Come to terms with who you are. Come to terms with your weaknesses. Come to terms with your deficiencies. And then when he wrestles, he is blessed. His name is changed from Jacob to, to Israel. One who has power with God. You see, when he defrauded Esau, he defrauded Esau as Jacob. But when he reconciles with Jacob, he reconciles with Jacob as Israel. Jacob defrauded Israel. Um, sorry, Jacob defrauded Esau, but Israel reconciled with Esau. A changed man. Okay? You, let me just say this to you. This is a prophetic for some people here this morning. You might have messed up being governed by your carnal nature in a particular matter. But you cannot rectify it with the nature that you caused it with. You have to adjust and say, God, in my weakness, in the, the momentary indiscretions of my flesh, I fell. But now, I'm not going to rectify the matter with the same mentality or nature that caused the issue. Now I'm going to approach it and redeem it with a transformed nature. One who has power with God. Amen? One who has power with God. There's, there's, there's a lovely, you know, the Jacob-Esau distinction is a powerful Bible study in itself. Jacob I have created, Israel I have formed. Dr. Segi shared with us, that's Isaiah 43 and verse 1. Jacob is created, but Israel is formed. God must form the Israel in the Jacob. In your Jacobness, there's an Israel. You know? Just in passing, this is what the Lord said to me. Genesis 48. This is a slight detour. I'll get back to this. Genesis 48, verse 1 and 2. It came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. All the brothers and Joseph had come back from, uh, come down from Canaan to reconcile with their long estranged brother, Joseph, he forgives them, etc. There's wonderful reconciliation. So, in Genesis, at the end of Genesis 49, at the end of Genesis 49, Jacob would die. Right? Not so? So he's an old man ready to peg off here. He's weak, he's frail. Okay? It came about after these things, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took two of his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob is sick, but Israel sits up. 
The two descriptions are the same man. Right? So Joseph is bringing who? Manasseh and, and Ephraim to, to Jacob. In fact, Joseph by this act is sowing his two sons to his father. You never read that there's a tribe called Joseph in all the tribes of Israel, yet he's a key son. Not so? But you read of the tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of? Joseph was firstborn, so Joseph gets double portion. Yeah? So they become Jacob's sons. It's like when Ruth gave birth to Obed. Who does she take the boy? And she puts it on the lap of? On the lap of Naomi. And the Lord spoke to me this because sometimes we as leaders are weak and sick in beds. And yet sons come to us. And Jacob here yeah, would prophesy over the boys, crossing his hands, and give a firstborn blessing to, Eph- to Ephraim. You know the story. I won't go through it here because of time. When Jacob is sick, here's the point I want to tell you. When Jacob is sick, Israel must sit up. What is sickening you? What is weakening you? What is causing you to be inert, to lay flat on a bed when there's tasks and activities and people waiting in line for you to minister to and to bless? If you focus on your Jacobness, you're going to do nothing. But the Israel in you has got to sit up. It's amazing. Jacob is sick. Look at verse 1. Your father is sick. Right? They took two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, with him. Look at the next verse. When it was told who? So you, when you read terms like this in the scripture, you must read it with prophetic eyes. They told the deceiver. They told the man of the flesh. They told he who is weak, he who is prone to sin. They told that guy, your son Joseph, He's coming, but he's coming with two of his sons, your grandsons, which prophetically are really your sons that he will sow to you. God said to me, listen carefully, Randolph, you can't afford to be sick now because there are people coming and you're going to have to configure destinies. You're going to have to impart life. So I want to encourage you, tell your neighbor, let the Israel in you sit up. Jacob sick. I can just picture this. He has a sick man, right, half dead. And he, when he hears, everyone say he heard. A messenger tells him, Joseph is on his way with his two sons. At the sound of that message, it activates something. He sits up, right? right? He sits up and he prepares himself to minister. I won't go to this. This is a fantastic study if you want to study the whole chapter. But look at the next chapter, how the next chapter starts. In, in chapter 49, verse 1, Jacob, this is a long chapter, not so? Chapter 49, Jacob would prophesy over all 12 tribes at length, at length. At the end of the chapter, he dies. This is his last assignment, not so? His last assignment, okay? Ephraim and Manasseh get double portion because they are prophesied over in chapter 48 and chapter 49, right? The special boys, Joseph's sons. When Jacob summoned his sons and said, now who's summoning? And who's, he said, assemble yourselves that I might tell you or prophesy what will befall you in the last days or the days to to come. 
Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob. But listen to who? Listen to Israel, your father. Israel and Jacob are the same man. Jacob summons, gather to me, but when I speak, I speak as the Israel of God. Don't hold, what he's saying is, don't hold my Jacobness against me when I speak. Don't hold my history of deception of my brother Esau when I speak. Because now when I speak, I speak as the Israel of God. You must never ever hold your perceived weaknesses against somebody that you perceive. Because sometimes God will cause a person to rise up over what is weakening them when that person has learned to access the grace of God in them and to function by that grace. Okay? So gather to Jacob, but listen to, to Israel. Aren't you amazed sometimes when God uses you? Wow, He used me with all my Jacobness? <laughs> the Israel in you spoke. And now listen carefully. The Jacob in you must die, but the Israel in you must be more prominent. Until such time where there's no Jacob in you. And it's only the Israel of God in, in you. Now to get there, listen carefully. I really think that integrity of heart is going to facilitate and fast track the process. Your purity, your uprightness, the sense of wholeness and completeness is the thing that's going to get the job done. If you go back to Acts 8 and verse 21, the apostles say to Simon the sorcerer, you have no part or portion in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart, twice the heart is mentioned in this passage. In verse 21, he said your heart is not right. In verse 22, he said pray that the in." The intention of the heart might be forgiven you. I want to speak briefly, I didn't get to talk about it last week, to the matter of intentions of the heart. You see, there's the state of the heart and there are intentions of the heart. Intentions speak to desires. Intentions speak to aims. Intentions speak to ambitions. Speaks to things that you are inclined towards, proclivities or things you would like to do things that you would like to uh, accomplish, things you would like to procure, things you would like to see happen. There's a heart and there's the intent of the heart. If the heart is not right, neither will its intent be. Okay? If the heart is not right, neither will its intent be. When David sinned before God, he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a Right spirit in me. If, if there's something called a right spirit, there must be something called a wrong spirit. Okay? You can have the wrong spirit in you. You can have, the word right there literally means steadfast, consistent, totally devoted. A right spirit within me. David asked for purity of heart that would make his spirit steadfast or right before God. Many times when the word spirit is used in the Bible, it is used of a disposition. Like, um, I will pour out, Zechariah 12, verse 10, I think it is, I will pour out upon the house of David the spirit of grace and of prayer and supplication. Where it says the spirit of prayer and supplication, uh, it's, their spirit speaks to a disposition, an inclination towards. Okay? If I say to someone you have the wrong spirit, 
it means you are you're leaning towards the wrong thing. You're inclined towards the you inclined towards the wrong thing. Okay. So when they say to uh, Simon the sorcerer, your heart is not right before God. Neither are the intentions of your heart right before God. Uh, you are reaching out after the wrong things. You have the wrong things as your aims, as your ambition. You want the power of the Holy Ghost to pray on people. That's the wrong thing right now for where you are in your development in Christ. That's the, you're reaching out for the wrong thing. You'll be amazed at how many people reach out for the wrong thing. Ask your neighbor, what is your ambition? You see, until you get this thing right, the intent of your heart, what are you wanting? What is the thing that you pursue must be ratified? In, for example, in Genesis 22 and verse 12, God said this to Abraham. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. He was just about to sacrifice Isaac. And do nothing to him, for now I know. Everyone say now. It's not that God didn't know before. I said God is omniscient. He knows everything. When you read verses like this and it says, Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. That's more for Abraham's information. It's not for God. God will test you. Yes, he will. To, to, to make certain that his original choice of you is the right one. But it confirms things in your mind as to where your priorities are. Now, think about what the son represents. Who is, being, who is the lad here? Who is being sacrificed? Isaac, not so. What does Isaac represent? The fulfillment of a prophecy. God said to Abraham, you will be a father. He was old and his wife was old. Now they got, they've given birth to Isaac. Now, and Romans says, in Isaac shall your seed be. That, simply, that statement simply means, you, you are barren, you and your wife, you've got one son, Isaac, the son of promise. By the way, from heaven's perspective, Ishmael is not Abraham's son. Because when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, these are God's word. Take your son, your only son. Heaven did not regard the other son. In fact, Ishmael was produced by Abram. But Isaac was produced by Abraham. His name was still Abram when he produced Ishmael. But Abraham means an insertion of grace, produced the son of promise. So what you do in your flesh is not recognized by God, even though you do it. You see, the promise was, I'll make you a father. You can't call yourself a father if there's no son. It's like some people say, I'm a leader. But when you look behind you, no one's following you. You can't be a leader and no followers, right? So Abraham cannot say, I'm a father, but you have not one son. Because his wife was impatient, she suggested that he sleeps with her concubine called Hagar, remember? Impatience, listen carefully, is a serious, serious, potentially inhibiting factor to destiny. Tell your neighbor, be patient. They were impatient and they, listen carefully, impatience sought or cajoled them 
to employ carnal means to produce an outcome that would have said to the world, the prophecy has come to pass. But it wasn't the doing of the Lord. It was an Ishmael. Okay? And so God literally, um, through time, would teach faith to Abraham and produce, insert grace within his being in Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis 21, Isaac would be born. You know the story, right? All by the act of God, the sovereign act of God. Now, from heaven's perspective, Abram is the son. And God says, take that boy. You know, God has a way of rubbing things in. He says, take your son, your only son whom you love, and kill him. He says, God really test that. Take your son, comma, the only boy, yeah, whom you love, yeah, kill the boy. <laughs> so God says, hey, imagine what's going through Abraham's mind. But you promised me I'm going to be a father. I tried to do something in the flesh, produce Ishmael. You were angry with me. You sent the boy and his mother away because he, he challenged the son of promise, Isaac, which means laughter. Now, the things have seemingly started to mushroom. Things, there's a development of the fulfillment of promise. Now you tell me, take that boy and kill him? You see, what does Isaac represent to Abram? Isaac represents the medium through which the entirety of his prophetic will for his life would come to pass. Because the scripture in Romans says, In Isaac shall your seed be. Isaac would produce Jacob. Jacob would produce 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. From Judah's line, Jesus would come. So think broadly like that. There's a lot hanging on this command to Abram when he says to him, Take the boy and kill the boy. Abram exactly knows. If this boy, after I kill him, does not rise from the dead, there's a whole process of events and circumstances that will be aborted. Right? So what was God testing? What was Abraham's test? What did God, why did God say, Now I know that you fear me. You have not withheld your son, your only son from me. God is saying, my destiny for you and my prophetic will for you is not your idol. Do you know God's will for you can become a, an idolatrous position in your life? And God, because that boy represents, I mean, every time he would wake up and he would see Isaac, Abraham must be smiling. Yo, God did this. This is God's doing. It's not just God's doing. This is the vehicle. He's going to have sons and sons. And through them, I'll become a father of many nations. Now God says, take the very medium or the means through which the rest of your prophecies are going to come to pass and sacrifice that to me. When Abram was prepared to kill the boy, God knew. This Abram, my will for him is not his God. I am his God. His, my prophetic destiny for him is not his God. I am his God. Do you know how ambitious people are in the kingdom? Maybe what you are pursuing is your idol. And God's saying, take the boy 
take that thing and put it on the altar. Sacrifice it there. Let me check what's in there. What is lurking in your heart? Listen carefully. If you, what does Isaac mean, by the way? Laughter, right? If you can give up the thing that causes you laughter in the will of the Lord, when God checks your heart, you are God's son. You're not worshiping him for the outcomes of your prophetic will or destiny. You will do whatever it takes to please him. God must check what is in the heart. What if tomorrow God says to me, Randolph, I want you to emigrate to Bulgaria and Europe to minister to the saints there. And if I say, but God, I've worked so hard here. You called me here. I must give my laughter up. You do call me laughter, by the way. Must I give all this up? Must I give whatever? I, I, I think in my mind would be mediums through which the rest of your will. What if he said tomorrow, I want you to shut your website down. Let's say God says that to me. Lord, please don't ask me, but I'm just saying. As an example, Lord. Not <laughs> what if God says to me, Randolph, shut that website down for the next 10 years. I want to check what is in you. If I idolize ministry and all the avenues we've created to bless nations and I disobey God, it proves the ministry was my idol and my God and not God. God will always test you to sacrifice the thing or the medium by which you are going to be a blessing and His will will come out for your life. You see, the matter of integrity goes way beyond morality. It's not just about keeping yourself pure. It's about obeying God. When it costs you the most. Everyone say integrity of the heart. Right? What is in the heart is question that God is asking us. What is in the heart? We have a very powerful example in our father, uh, spiritual father, Pastor Thamo Naidu, when God asked him to leave Marisburg. He left a whole lot of things. Well-established name, well-established ministry. And so... And, and he went to start a new work in Santon with nothing, literally. And that's a very powerful, we have, we don't just have Abraham and Isaac. We have a very powerful example in our world, in our, in our present day, in the person of our spiritual father in Christ, who left up what was built to go to something, knowing not whither he goes. All he knows, God is leading me. God said, let me check what's in your heart. Are you willing to give up what I built through you to start something new? So ask your neighbor this, are you willing to give up your Isaac? Whatever your Isaac represents to you, or are you willing to sacrifice the medium, the very thing, the medium of blessing, the avenue, in whatever that might be um, to you in reference to what the Lord would do? Psalm 105 verse 19, I quoted this last week, but I just want to, to, to emphasize it. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord did what? Tested him. Tell your neighbor, God's word will test you. This is in reference to Joseph. Joseph had many prophecies. But this verse is a commentary on Joseph's life. It says, until. Everyone say until. You see, we all want this part. Not, not, not so. We all want this part. His word came to pass. Who does not want that? Who does not want that said of you that in your life, God's will, God's word, God's destiny for your life came to pass? Does anybody here not want that? We all want that, not so. 
But it, there's a key word here. Everyone say until. This is simply saying no word is coming to pass. There's no word, no will coming to pass until that word has tested you. The word has got to test you before the word comes to pass. In Joseph's life, if you examine his life, it was a series of tests. Not so. God tested him with Potiphar's wife, for example. He had to pass the purity test. God tested him with his management of Potiphar's household because the Bible says God put Joseph in charge of all his goods. He had to prove a responsible steward with stuff that was not his. Think about it. Right? He had to prove faithful in jail. When the head jailer, when he was falsely accused of rape, the head jailer put him in charge of all the, the prisoners. He had to prove that he could function excellently in a leadership capacity in a place going nowhere very fast. Prison. Who would like a top position? Anyone like top positions? But it's in a prison. Where you're one of the prisoners, by the way. <laughs> Joseph must be saying, hey, i got a top position. And sending his email out from the prison. God gave me a top position. Friends ask, what is this? Head. Head of what? Head jailer. <laughs> but he executes. Why? How do I know that? When fellow prisoners come to him with problems, he resolves their issues. And he breaks open destinies, like for example, for the butler, interprets a dream, and the man is out of the prison and is back into the courts. So he proves responsible. Right? And then God used that process and put him back under Pharaoh's command. Remember, he became second to the Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, if you travel... Anywhere in Egypt, now, after he interpreted the dreams, you travel in my chariot. Right? And anywhere you go throughout the land, if any Egyptian sees you, they will bow. Right? Even the Potiphar's of Pharaoh. He was managing Potiphar's house faithfully. Now he's ruling the land of which Potiphar's house is a part of. God elevates the man because what happened? The word of the Lord had to test after test after test after test. Consistently, the word of the Lord is trying him before the big word comes to pass. Now, let me just say this to you. Every time the word of the Lord tests you, it's designed to show what is in your heart. When God gave him rulership of Potiphar's house, he has the test. It was not just a sexual purity test when he was enticed by Potiphar's wife. It wasn't just that. Because she used psycho on him. She said to him, has not my husband, your master, given you responsibility over all his goods in his house? That's a subtlety. You must read between the lines. What she is saying is, I'm part of his goods. He's given you management over all his goods. I'm part of his, of, of his property and his goods. So, take me. Here am I. But he did not fall for the, for the bait. Okay? Uh, he, he, listen carefully. He was pure. He was righteous. He practiced integrity. Even when he could have covered it up and no one would have ever known. He was pure, honest, and a righteous man. Tell someone the word will test you. 
tell them this, the world will test you when no one can see. And you are busy failing some tests. You know you are failing the test, but you want public blessings. I want to encourage all, pass the private, unseen, hidden tests before they come to pass. Everyone say the, the intent of the heart. Now, listen carefully. When I do what is right, who must I always have in view? Is it men, people, or is it God? Who? It must be. It must be God. Let me give you a couple of scriptures that highlight this. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1 says, Therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of your spiritual leader. Perfecting holiness in the fear of those whom you regard or respect. No. Perfecting holiness in the fear of your wife. No. Perfecting holiness in the fear of your husband. No. Perfecting holiness to please your mother. No. Perfecting holiness to please your father. No. Perfecting holiness with who as a standard in your mind? In the fear of God Him, of God Himself. When, when God is the object and the focus and the standard of your integrity or holiness by which you seek to function. It's a very good standard. Don't seek it to, don't do it to, to please me. In fact, there's a verse, um, if I can find it quickly. Um, we are always encouraged, I think it's in my other note. Remember when, I think it's in Matthew, don't, don't turn to it. But in Matthew it says, do not practice your righteousness to be seen by men. Because if you do that, you will have reward, the reward of men. But do your practice your righteousness to be seen by God. God who sees what you do in private will reward you, will reward you openly. Now, let me just say this. If you are a man pleaser, that's exactly what you will get, a man's reward. But if you are a God pleaser, that is exactly what you will get, God's reward. Amen. So whom do we want to please? Do we want to please men or do we want to please do we want to please God? Let me, let me just say this to you. When I taught the whole matter of kingdom economics, but let me just say this to you. You're never at a place where you can say that I've mastered. God will test you all the time. It's like he's constantly testing you about where your trust is. What God was saying to me, I want to check Randolph. Yeah, big mouth, you've taught this thing. Now what's in your heart? Right? What is in your heart? And I've learned to, and I've learned to um, release, for example, in the matter of finance, and not be governed by, by, uh, uh, by, by the need to please people externally, but so long as when I put my head on the pillow, it must be said of me, he did it in the fear of God. God has his standard. Sometimes we need provocation in the matter of, of, of obedience. Hebrews 4, I'm going to end here because of time. Much else to speak about the intentions of the heart. But Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And verse 12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of the soul and spirit 
of both the joints and the marrow and is able to do what? To judge two things. The Word of God is able to judge the thoughts and the what? And the intentions of the heart. God will always expose to you exactly what is in your heart. In Psalm 139, just because of time, I'm going to quickly wrap up. In Psalm 139, and reading from verse 23. You know this very well. This is a well-known portion. Search me and know my heart. It's not that God doesn't know. I think the psalmist is really after him knowing what is in his heart. The Bible says in Jeremiah, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know what's in your heart? Only God knows, right? So he says, God, you search me and know what's in my heart. Try me and know my, my anxious thoughts. And then he makes this statement, see. Everyone say see. See if there be any hurtful or wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It only dawned upon me when I was considering the scripture about two weeks ago. In verse 23, he asked to be searched. And in verse 24, he says the searching is so that you can see and then lead. The search is never with a view to embarrass to expose or marginalize you. The daring request that he makes to God, this is a courageous request. The psalmist is saying, God, you put your spotlight on and you expose the hidden crevices of my heart. I'm willing to lay it all bare before you, but the intent of your search is so that you can lead. So that you can lead. And I want to encourage you, as you subscribe to... A desire, if you say to God, Lord, you check me out, search me, scrutinize me, assess my heart. But the intent of your searching is so that you might lead me into path of truth and of righteousness. Now, the Lord spoke to me something very powerful. Uh, maybe I'll explain this more fully the next time we meet. But whatever God exposes in His search... He intends to empower by His leading. Whatever God exposes to you in His search of the contents of your heart, even the bad things, the hurtful way or the wicked way, His intent is not to, so that you be discouraged by that, but the exposure of the Lord is to empower. Whatever God exposes, He intends to empower for you to overcome. Okay? I love what David Agaga said when he said that to the woman caught in the act of adultery, when God said to her, go and sin no more, it was not just an instruction, it was an impartation of grace not to commit adultery. Okay? So in the command of God is the capacitation of God to overcome or to do the command. Whatever God expects of you, He will also empower you. God never has requirements for which He will not give you the requisite grace to do and to fulfill, okay? So God commands, but He also em empowers you. Tell someone you can. We can live an honest life. We can live a life of integrity. Now, let me ask you this, brethren. Is, can God search you? Can God? Yes or no? Why can He? Because He's a God of light. In you, there might be hidden areas of, of darkness, okay? 
or, or subtleties that residue that you need to overcome. It'll take light to expose what's in, in darkness. Now, here is where I want to challenge you with. Listen carefully. 1 John 1, 5. I'm going to close with the scripture. 1 John 1, 5. Listen very, very carefully. I think it's this way. Yeah. 1 John 1, 5. The message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness. Say this with me. God is light. And in Him, there is no darkness. Okay, God is light, and in Him, there is no darkness. In Psalm 139, it says in verse 11, Surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and light around me will be night. And in verse 12 says a wonderful thing, Even darkness is not dark to you. And night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are light to you. So even if you think you can do something in darkness, to God it's light. Nothing is hid from Him. But when God's searchlight is on you to expose the darkened areas in you, First John, the, the verse we read before this, said that God is light and in Him. Everyone say in Him. In Him there's no darkness so enemies complete light therefore even if there's darkness externally if you look at darkness from the perspective of light darkness is light to you darkness is light to you now here's the challenge i want to give to all of us hear me carefully it's not that god just wants to purify you to get you pure god wants to extract any residual darkness out of you so you become the light of the world. Right? But now, listen carefully. This is only for the mature, unfortunately, what I'm about to say. He who has an ear, let him hear toward the expectation of the demand of the Lord for you. The scripture says, how can you want to take out the speck of dust in your brother's eye, but you have what in your A moat. A moat is a log, a light pole. See these light poles here? Take one out. Just picture this, right? Take it off the ground and put it in your eye. Boom. So you've got one eye open and you've got a light pole here. Imagine walking with a light pole. That's the imagery when God says, and then, and, and Shan here has got a small piece of dust in the eye, and you with your light pole want to take out his speck of dust. Jesus says, how can you Behold the speck of dust in your brother's eye, but you have a light pole in your own eye. Right? What did Jesus say? First cast the, the, mold, the moat, the light pole out of your eye, then you'll be able to see clear enough to help your brother with his niggy, niggy, niggy small issue. After you've dealt with your huge, humongous problem. Right? So, the clearer, here's the point, the, the more clearer you can see, the more greatly you are positioned to help others. Right? So, listen carefully, but here's the scary thing that I'm finding out in my, in my growth in God in recent times. As I am mastering integrity, you know what's happening? Light is growing. And light allows me to see darkness even in others. 
where I could not behold it before. I wrote here, and please listen to this as we close. Listen carefully. The darkness in others will only be exposed to you when in you there is no darkness. Because there's no darkness in God. That's why you can look at other darkness and other people's darkness are as light to Him. You can see exactly what's going on. Right? And I wrote here, listen carefully, usually, though not always, the degree to which we cannot perceive of error or sin in others simply highlights the extent to which those same things are still present in us. This is a frightening thought. I type, you know, I was typing this out just like studying spontaneously. And the Lord speak to me. I was typing, you know, I have to stop. I went on typing other things. I came back and said, what did, what did I type here? Was this you or was this me thinking? And God says, no, this is me. God said to, to me, Randolph, I want to use you as light. But, listen carefully, you can, if you, this is like a subtle, I don't know how to frame this. The inability for you to see what the, 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 the sin or the error in others only exposes the degree to which that thing is still present in you. But if you can function from a position of, of light, you will see what's in others because you have clarified that your position in reference to that vice yourself. But when you, now here's the deal. The one position, you see the other thing because it's akin to you. It's in you. But from the other position, when you function from light, you see darkness for what it is. But you, I cannot help someone in darkness from a position of darkness. I have to help the person in darkness from a position of light. Now God's saying, now when I expose it to you, I will expose it to you from a strong position of light so that you can bring light to their darkness and help them. I want to ask you a question. Let me frame it like this. The sin or the error that you most talk about because you see it in others without a simultaneous capacity to help them only reveals how present that same thing is in you. But if you can see it, in others, but in you, there's a capacity to help them. Shows you how you've overcome that same thing in your own life. Now tell someone this is for the mature. Now I want to ask you, do you want to help? Anyone want to help somebody else? Eh? Who wants to be a source of help to somebody else? Right? Who wants to take out some specks out of some people's eyes? Now tell you, to first take the light pole out of your own. Remove your light pole so you can see clear. All I'm saying to you is, you know, we are so judgmental. Eh? We look for the freckles and the frikies in everybody else. But we don't do some, hey, maybe these, and I, I don't know why the Lord's stressing this, but maybe the thing you constantly talk about in others is the most thing that you are struggling with yourself, but you're afraid to admit it. The only time you can speak redemptively about a particular issue is when you've overcome it yourself and you speak from a position of light and from a position of light, you can help the other. Okay? That is going to be very important. And let me say this. John 1 says, In Him was light. Just read it in closing. Not close. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that came into being. In Him was life. And the life was what? You see, His light was for men. Light is life. Tell someone, your life is your light. The how you live is God's light in you. But it's not just meant for you, it's for men. His life was the light of, of men. Okay, verse 5. The light shines where? The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not comprehend it or has got the inability to withstand it. That's what it means. The inability to, 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 to fob it off. Let me just say this to you. Have you ever entered a dark room looking for a light switch that you can't find? It's sometimes the most irritating thing. Eh? It happened to me now. I was at the hotel here. Yeah? We slept at the Marriott on Canal Walk. One point in the morning, I forgot where this light switch was. There was quite a classy place we lived in on the weekend. And they got the light switches in the most <laughs> not normal places. <laughs> we had earth. I was fumbling in the dark. They call it groping in the dark. Um, John 5, 38 say, 35, John 12, 35 says, He who walks in darkness does not know whither he goes. <laughs> so I was trying to find this thing. And then eventually found it under the bed, head, the headboard. So light switch, oh yeah, hallelujah. And the moment I pressed the guess what happened? Darkness that was so imposing in our flesh bowed to light. Everyone say, darkness bows to light. Maggie, you must become the light of your world. The light of your work. When you come, light enters. And you're not just to expose the darkness. You're there to help the darkness. Tell someone, you are, your life is light. Your life is light. So you boys, your life is light. You walk into a specific sphere, the room must literally light up. I'm not talking naturally, I'm talking spiritually. You know, you know there's sometimes you go to certain contexts and you literally perceive darkness. Eh? You get a funny feeling. Have you ever had those experiences? You can't put your finger on the thing, but you just say, hey, something's not right here. I am finding now a lot of people that are interacting with us are coming to confess. Why? You cannot encounter light that is so bright and still stay in darkness. Now please, I want, I beg you, do not be judgmental. Don't say, I am the light, therefore I'm God's instrument of exposing all. No, 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 no. I am telling you, the intent of the light is to help those in darkness. It's, re it's, it's, it's redemptive. It's there to help. And you know what I've discovered? God said to me two things this weekend while we were teaching. God said to me, firstly, I've put you in arbitration situations where you bring peace between brothers because you've sought to master your love for brothers. Now I can entrust you. And if I put you there, you will do the right thing to help. And, and secondly, in reference to, to what we are saying now, God is saying to me, I can, I can give you light and cause you to expose darkness because now I see 
that you will not use people's negativity against them. It will not be on Facebook. You will not pick up the phone and break confidences and, and share bad news with anybody. You're there to, you're there to help. You're there to, to rescue people from their plights. And I want to encourage you. Does anybody want to be like Jesus? Now, who wants to be like Jesus when the scripture says, and he entered the room and he knew exactly what was on their hearts? Who would like that kind of info? You like, you like you know, that intel. You want to go in any context? Who would like to be right now? Audrey, would you like to know what everybody right now is thinking about you? <laughs> you say, God, you have that in the... You see, God will only entrust that kind of light and authority or the capacity to see based upon a certain level of maturity because that information in the hands of an immature person, hey, brethren, we'll have no church left. <laughs> Hallelujah. But tell someone you are the light. Tell them keep your heart pure. Say I have a heart of integrity. Right? I'm talking about the heart and the intents of the heart. What is in there? Amen. Lift your hands to the Lord. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for this word. God, we sense uh, a call to come up higher. We sense an elevation in the spirit. You want us to be lights to the world. But hearts without darkness, hearts full of light. In you there was no darkness, your word says. For in God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. Search us and try us, but lead us in the way everlasting. I thank you that your search is to help us, is to lead us to a more perfect way. I thank you for your heart of mercy. And now God, help us to overcome those things we are struggling with. Help us to remove the, the logs in our own eyes. That we would help our brothers take out the specks in their eyes. Thank you that we are light. Like you are the light of the world. You said to us, we shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. You've called us to be your light. God, we want to be that light in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.